You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. God says the problem is right here. It's resident evil. It's personal sin. It's a mindset that is more worldly than we're willing to admit. And James here, particularly as he's doing the diagnosis, I think puts his finger right on one spot inside the body, so to say, and he says it's, it's envy. Envy. How often does envy get talked about? Admitting that you struggle inwardly with jealousy and discontentment is a very hard acknowledgement, especially when, by all appearances, you've got it together. Today, the root of worldliness is described by Pastor Tom. Envy. This very word and all it is will end up eating you alive. Do you think that when you get what you've been striving for, there will no longer be emptiness? It's a vicious circle that ruins relationships and drive anger. This is personal selfishness. Friends, deal with this. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 4 as he begins his message, The Cure for Worldliness. Worldliness is not a new thing to the church. But maybe that captures in a nutshell why we need to study worldliness and why we have to make sure when we study it that we don't reduce the remedy to worldliness merely to eliminating smoking and gambling and chewing at the front door of the church or targeting those who pierce belly buttons, dye their hair pink, and splatter their arms with tattoos. Did you know that Charles Spurgeon himself enjoyed smoking fine cigars? Recreationally, he was not addicted. The problem of worldliness in believers is not so much clothing fashions, youthful fads, or R-rated movies. Areas in which there's some freedom of choice where we need to be careful with our choices. Worldliness, as the Bible describes it, focuses on the aspirations of our hearts. It reveals itself mostly through selfishness and self-elevation. The world has its way of thinking, and it captures us in the same way of thinking and pulls us into it sometimes. And that's how we become even more worldly. So with humility, I think we come back to James 4, and to open this uh, important text and study this together. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. It's really best if you have a copy of God's Word in your lap and you can follow along. You'll just learn so much more. God will speak to you in a greater way. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? James writes and asks, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable 
and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Well, as we noted here, James, by the Holy Spirit, is urging believers to choose friendship with God, to reject the cravings of the world. To cure us of the curse of worldliness, James, as a good spiritual surgeon, so to say, takes three actions in this passage. First, he diagnoses worldliness. That's where we are in the midst of in verses one through three, the diagnosis. Second, I hope we get to this today, he cuts worldliness out of us. He has to. It's not something that's good for our health in verses four and five. And then he provides the medicine, quite a bit of medicine, really, to be rid of worldliness in verses six through 10. Uh, in verse two, we're, we're learning in verses one and two that there is worldliness all around us, but it does latch indeed onto our hearts. It elicits those cravings and pleasures that are already inside of us. It takes advantage of it, so to say. There is the world operating that way and thinking that way and pursuing those things. And we have some of that left remnant inside of us. And the world is able to take advantage of that. And we sometimes succumb to temptation and join in that way of thinking and pursue those same pleasures. And so um, when we do that, it often then puts us in conflict with other people because we can't fulfill those pleasures. It's what I want. You stand in the way. I can't get what I want. So you become my enemy and I get into conflict with you. And we saw that that can reach extreme cases, even murderous desire. And it's not beyond the possibility of a believer committing murder or at least a churchgoer committing murder. And so we see that uh, that becomes the extreme situation. We were right in the middle of verse 2. I want you to take a look at the second statement there. He says, you are envious and cannot obtain. Now, that's quite a sad statement. We're going to talk about that, being envious and still not being able to obtain. So what do you do? You fight and quarrel. You fight and quarrel. Now, envy is a problem. It's a big problem, really. There's a lot more envy inside of us than maybe we're willing to admit. Envy... Envious is actually the verb zelao. You hear the word zeal in there, to have zeal for, but it really means to be jealous for something for yourself, and so it's envious. It's to have zeal for something that you wish you would have, someone else has, you don't, and so that's how we get the idea of envy from it. It's a very strong inner desire. Now, please understand, when James is talking about pleasures, he's not simply talking about the pleasures of the belly or sexual desire. There are many other kinds of desires and pleasures that wage war inside of us. But please notice also, with this strong desire comes a frustration. Now, there are many people who live very frustrated lives. You might be one of them. But this describes it, having envy, but not getting to obtain the thing that you're envious for. It's like the carrot out in front of the dog, you know? Always out in front and you're chasing it and you never get it. What a frustration. What a frustrating way to live. That's the way many of us live. Envious of something we never obtain. Do you remember that old quote? Envy is thin because it bites, but it never eats. It never gets any satisfaction. It never gets to chew and eat and consume. It's like the pirates of the Caribbean drinking their whatever and they can't get any satisfaction because they've been turned into skeletons and the refreshment just flows through them. There's just never any satisfaction at all. 
envy, wanting it, and can't obtain it. Some people are envious for things, and they've been pursuing it for years, decades, and they're just never able to obtain it. There's something inside of them that's just so dissatisfied with life constantly. And so they're angry at times, bitter, definitely frustrated. Often we blame our lack on having things on other people. You know, we, we don't really realize it, but, you know, the wife or the husband or the kids don't turn out the way we envisioned, the way we wanted, and, and that we were kind of trying to get something through them and be very selfish through them, and they don't turn out the way we want, and so we are angry with the wife or angry with the husband or angry with the kids or angry with the parents, and they, they're kind of in the way of what we think life ought to be like. Or we can be angry with the boss the same way. You know, the boss should be recognizing this, and the boss should be promoting, but that other guy who doesn't do anything, he gets promoted. And there's this sense of frustration and anger towards that person because they're not helping to fill out the way you wrote the story of your life. This is how it's going to go, and they're missing their cue. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. And so they've messed up, and you're angry with them. Or the government. The government isn't doling out all the things they should be doling out, or they're not protecting the border the way they should be protecting the border, or they're not offering jobs the way they should be doing, and we're angry at the government. Sometimes we just get angry at other people in church. This is what we want to do with our ministry. This is how it ought to go. This is a need, and we're angry with them. They stand in the way. It's something we're trying to accomplish, and we can sanctify that because we think it's good. You know, we're... I mean, Pastor Plumley already gave it this morning. We're, we're members of one another. We're, we're joined to one another. We're part of a family. We're part of the body of Christ. And so getting angry at each other in church is like attacking your own team, attacking your own body. It's not very smart, is it? It doesn't really help the whole body to do what it needs to do when we go to war with one another. I mean, we go, we celebrate the table together, as the Lord said. We're all like consuming a meal and eating of the same body because we're members of one another. And so warring with one another just doesn't make any sense. When we rip other people up, we gossip about other people. We spread strife, frustrated outbursts or tearing down people's reputation or working against something that someone's trying to do. That just tears us all down. That doesn't help the body. But that is indeed where my envy and your envy will lead if we hang on to it. That's kind of what it does. That's what he's saying. If you want to know where it goes, that's kind of how it is. Now, some people are very loud in their fighting <laughs> and in their quarreling. Would you agree? But there's some of you who quarrel and fight, but you do it quietly. And you need to recognize this is true of you as well. Just because someone doesn't say that you know, you're a fighting person doesn't mean you're not fighting. Sometimes quiet people, just very stubbornly, they fight as well. So we need to not envision certain personalities here. We need to be thinking about the spiritual truth that is going on here. Also need to say that increasingly believers are finding the solution to whatever's going on in their, in their minds and in their bodies, and they're going to the psychologist and they're trying to find the solution to what they're being told are much deeper problems than can be dealt with in church or in the Bible. And we're hearing that message over and over again. The worldly psychologist who doesn't have any of the faith understanding or assumptions that we do here in the church, but I have to say often, unfortunately, many so-called Christian psychologists, they'll put forward some very sophisticated explanation for why you're thinking the way you're thinking or feeling the way you're feeling or behaving the way you're behaving. And um, 
They talk about your anger and where it comes from or your feelings of inadequacy and why you have that. And they become very skilled, very adept at assigning the blame away from your heart. If you think about it, how many psychologists have as their theory that the blame lands where this passage of Scripture says it lands? I mean, after all, I would pay a lot of money if someone else would tell me the problem's not with me. That's good. Keep flattering you. Keep flattering me, and I'll pay you big money. $100 an hour doesn't sound too much for that. This passage, though, is quite a nuisance because it keeps the target right back at our own hearts. It really doesn't say you're allowed to blame the parents or you're allowed to blame your circumstances or your whatever it is. And often even a chemical imbalance is blamed for something. And there's no real scientific proof for a lot of the theories that they have. It's something that's said and we latch onto it. It must be science. We put the blame there. But there's really not a lot of hard science behind it. But we believe it. We latch onto it because that's kind of the golden cow of modern society is science, even when it's wrongly used. So they're very adept at assigning the blame elsewhere. But really, their approach will only mask, most of the times, just masks the problem. God says, no, I know you. I made you. I designed you. I know about the chemicals in your brain, and I know about the spirit that I placed inside of you. I know how the brain interacts with the mind. I know how the body interacts with the soul. I know all of that, and I'm telling you the problems with your heart, not the thump, 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 thump heart. Your inner you, how you think on the inside, what is really you down deep that often you don't let anyone else know about, but he knows all about it. And he uses the word to do what Hebrews chapter 4 says, verse 12, that he opens up the inside and he pierces down to the very division of soul and spirit. He knows the inside. God says the problem is right here. It's resident evil. It's personal sin. It's a mindset that is more worldly than we're willing to admit. And James here, particularly as he's doing the diagnosis, I think puts his finger right on one spot inside the body, so to say, and he says it's, it's envy. Envy. How often does envy get talked about in the Bible? Envy, jealousy. You see it in Genesis right away with Cain and Abel, right? I mean, you see it with uh, Rachel. I'm going to die if you don't give me a baby, God. You know, <laughs> give me a baby, the envy and the jealousy is there so powerfully. It drives so much of what's going on. Really, if you think about it, all of the battles of the Arabs, the Middle East, and everything like that, it's all about envy. It's all about jealousy between tribes and brothers, the warring factions between the world. It's really like one of the most important problems. And it's unfulfilled envy. That's just frustrating. You want what you want. If you could just get what you wanted, you'd be happy. So you think. The more you can't get what you want, the more you feel empty, unfulfilled. When that gets stretched out over a long period of time, you, you didn't get certain things in fourth grade. You remember fourth grade? You still remember fourth grade. You remember those that beat you at what you wanted, and it persevered in the fifth and sixth, and middle school was the worst. At high school, you got a little better at covering it up, but you still wanted it, and you didn't get it the other people got. You didn't get it, whatever the it was, the grades, the girls, whatever it was, the nice shoes. I don't know what it was. And you feel empty, and it stays with you a long period of time, and it's really not a laughing matter. It doesn't go away. Other people get the better stuff. After a while, you begin to feel like, you know, I'm a loser. 
I would never say that outwardly because I, I have too much pride to admit it, but I'm a loser. You never wanted to be a loser. And now you're starting to think inside, like, I'm a loser. I didn't get what I wanted. And you can't obtain it. It was the, the great grades, and other people got it, and they went to the better schools, and, and you, you just, you know, you didn't get to go to the better schools, you know? I went to a very distinguished university, Frostburg. Oh, you're laughing at my alma mater now. It's graduated from, a, it was a teacher's school, and then it was a state college, and now it's a university. Maybe it was your parents' approval. You always wanted your parents' approval, but your dad, he just was hard. He was just hard. He just never really liked anything you ever did, you know, or mom. Maybe it was that athletic body. He thought you are going to grow taller. That was one that got me, you know. You're going to be taller. You're going to grow this year. I didn't grow that year. They tell you that the teachers tell you, you're going to grow this year. That didn't happen. I was gypped. I was cheated. Or it was that pretty girl that turned into another pretty girl. And you got kept turned down and turned down and turned down. And you begin to think, I never get what I want. You think of yourself as a loser or that tall, handsome man or that more respectable job. At least maybe if you didn't have that other stuff, you'd get that respectable job. You know, but now you just look at your job and it's like, there's nothing special about it. And you know, in, in that kind of an environment, you could even begin to hate yourself, to hate yourself, to loathe your life. But the truth is, you don't actually hate yourself. This is hard to understand, but you don't actually hate yourself. The truth is, you love yourself. You're ardently looking after yourself first. If you could have gotten what it is that you wanted to get, you would have grabbed it, put it in the pocket, and you had it. You would have put a big smile on your face. You actually do love yourself. You say you hate yourself, but you actually do love yourself. You hate how your life has turned out. That's what you hate, but you love yourself. The proof of that is you're pursuing those pleasures, those fulfillments for yourself. You're, you're more ardently doing that than you are trying to help other people with their problems. The love of self generates zeal for fulfilling passions, their goals in life, their longings, their dreams, and you're chasing those, and that proves you love yourself. You want what you want when you want it, and you think you ought to get it, and you work hard at it. If you don't get it, you're angry because you believe you deserve it. And if you don't get it and don't get it and don't get it, you hate how your life has become. You hate how your life has turned out. And yes, that can cause depression because of unfulfilled envy and self-love. And when people stand in your way, no matter who they are, it could be someone who's a friend, someone you've committed yourself to, you say you love them, and, and they're your friend, but you're going to fight them because they're standing in the way. The wife standing in the way. Anybody. They're your friend when they're helping you fulfill the lust, but when they're not helping you fulfill the lust, they're no longer a friend. Eh, I don't need them anymore, you say. They don't really get me. They don't understand me. But really what you're saying is, I'm not going to be faithful to them because they're going to help me fulfill my lusts. I don't like them anymore. And you dump the relationship. And sometimes this can get so bad, as we saw, it can lead to murder. But it can also lead to the murder of self which we call suicide. You can hate your life so much for unfulfilled things, you can commit murder of self. 
because you just hate the way your life has turned out. You might as well not live. If I can't, if I can't get it and I can't get it and I can never get it, then what is the point of living? The point of living was you're not supposed to be living for your own pleasures. The point of living is you're supposed to be living for the will of God, and you can always get that, always. Beloved, in these cases, the solution is not taking medicine to overcome depression. The secret is not found in some so-called scientific therapy. The solution is not in yoga meditation. The problem is your envy. The problem is your lusts. God said that. That's where the locus is. That's where the problem is, right there. It's fixed there. You have to deal with that. You can't keep pushing it off. You can't keep excusing yourself. You have to deal with what is wrong on the inside and what God says is wrong is wrong. You have to deal decisively in repentance with your lusts. It may kill you or someone else if you don't. Or it just may cause you to die a very slow death over the years. When your goal is getting what you want, the focus is all on yourself. You spend time chasing things. And really, we said this last time, even when you get those things, even when you get those things, you find out they don't satisfy anywhere near as much as you thought they would. You hold the trophy, so to say, in your hand. You finally, you pursued it, you chased it, you finally got it. You take it home, you're telling everyone you're so happy but when the lights are off and you're by yourself and you're honest with yourself, you know, this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. There's still something missing. And over time, when the greatness of all that feeling that you thought you were going to have, that you finally arrived and you achieved what you've been trying to achieve for decades, and you get there and it's not all that good, you put the trophy on the shelf, you kind of look at it, and then you go chasing something new something else that you're envying, something else that you think will fulfill. It just goes on. Let the chase begin again, and there it is. And you think that's what's going to fulfill your life. That sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? I mean, it paints a pretty bleak picture here. But we haven't gone as bad as we can go. Look at verse 2 again, because if you're a believer, it gets even more frustrating in your sin. Because worldly desire distances you from God. This is still part of the diagnosis here. Here, they're given in verses 2 and following there, in the middle of verse 2 and following, two more reasons for their frustration. And these reasons stand side by side as explanations. The first is prayerlessness. You do not have, see that emptiness still? You do not have, you don't have these things in your life because you do not, what? Ask. Much of what you're missing in your life right now, much of what makes it empty, that hole that you have inside, that ever-present emptiness that never seems to go away, just gets distracted from time to time, is there because you're not asking, you're not searching for God's blessing and gift in your life. It's there because of prayerlessness. You say, what? Yes, prayerlessness. You do not have because you do not ask. Ask for what? Well, James doesn't specify what he's referring to in asking, but in the context, it has something to do. It has to have something to do with what they're envying, what they want, what they think's missing from their life that they're pursuing, bringing some need, some desire. You're supposed to bring those inner desires to God, and you're supposed to ask him, help me. And they're not doing that. They're not dependent on him. See, James is not correcting prayerlessness like we often do, like you're being prayerless because you're too busy. You need to stop being so busy, you need to stop and, and, and start praying. That's not really what he's correcting here. He doesn't say anything about how busy you are. Rather, it's because you're too independent. 
you're, you're there and your mind is thinking that your life is too independent from the things that God wants to do in your life. And that's why there's prayerlessness there. You're not bringing something to God. You're not bringing that need and that desire to God. And because of that, you lack. And because you lack, you languish. You're fighting for what you want and you can't seem to get it because somebody's in the way. Talk about ruining relationships. What an intense heart issue it is when our striving turns into anger because of the failure of not accomplishing what we wanted. Pastor Tom talked today about the possibility that today's times leaves you hanging with mixed emotions that end up tearing you apart. Friend, Jesus has better for you. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leake, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. What quenches your thirst? What really satisfies that kind of longing? Friends, it's not what you think. The deceit that materialism captures exactly what you want is so far from the truth. Feeling frustrated? Feeling like you don't want to pray anymore because it never works? Tune in next time to hear Pastor Tom address the importance of recognizing what's really going on inside of you and how you think your life should be. Thanks for tuning in today for Discover Hope. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Tom, visit HopeBibleChurch.org. There's much more to learn from the book of Acts, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Discover Hope.